0: Hi, and welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I'm your host, Laura Hersher. I'm excited to have Libby Copeland here today. Libby is an award-winning journalist who has just written a new book called The Lost Family, which covers a big, broad, multifaceted look at all of the crazy things that are happening to people with the advent of genetic genealogy, and most specifically, big DNA databases. So if you're a genetic professional, as many people listening to me are, you know that this is the subject that's brought up to you at virtually every party you go to. So it's hard to live unaware that this is impacting lots and lots of families. So Libby, I think your book is so timely, um, and I'm so glad you're here to talk about it today.
1: Oh, thank you, Laura. I'm so thrilled to be here.
0: Yeah. So, This is kind of the big, like, hard-to-answer question to start at the beginning.
1: How many – what do you think
0: about the percentage? There's a lot of numbers kicked around. What do you think about the percentage of people that do a DNA ancestry test and get genuinely surprising news?
1: Yeah, so I did do a lot of thinking about this and a lot of reporting. And as you probably know, the major companies don't keep these statistics – they don't gather them, as far as I know. Um, family Tree DNA, which is the oldest and the smallest of the four major companies, um, the CEO told me, you know, basically it's not in our interest to gather statistics on significant unexpected results. Right? That's because honest. That will, yes, it will scare people away. Um, so what I did was I looked at um, the rates of non you know, NPEs or non-paternity events. Um, cross-culturally, there's been a lot of um, study of this. It's generally believed to be between 1% and 2%. Um, and I looked at that, and then I had conversations with genetic genealogists. And granted, there's a lot of self-selection, so you want to be careful in making assumptions that kind of um, – Draw on the number of surprising experiences because people may go to testing because they're curious to find out something. Like maybe they long suspected that the man they knew as their father wasn't genetically related to them, um, or you know. So there's a there's a, or maybe the genetic genealogists themselves may sort of selectively remember the surprising results. So I was very conservative, um, and what I came to after a lot of conversations with genetic genealogists and population geneticists is that um, at least 3%, and that's a very conservative number, of the approximately 35 million people now in commercial DNA databases have had either the experience of discovering their father is not their genetic father or the experience of discovering a sibling or half-sibling they didn't know about. Um, Candidly, I can tell you I think that number is actually higher but um, 3% is like a conservative number that allows me to say that that's at least a million people, the vast majority of them Americans.
0: It's However, I'll say It's a that huge number of It's people. huge.
1: It's a huge number. And if you consider the way that a single revelation refracts across an entire family, let's say I discover my dad's not genetically related to me, that has implications for my full siblings who are suddenly now aware that I am their half-sibling. It has implications for my mother um, because perhaps... You know, this happened before my parents were married, or perhaps it happened while my parents were married. In any case, she's affected. My father is affected. And now the man who is genetically revealed to be my father, who is perhaps a stranger to me, his family is affected. His wife is affected. And now I may have new half-siblings who are his children that I did not know were related to me. So a single revelation, you're looking at perhaps
0: And, eight, and to be 10, clear, 12 people. to be clear, that, that yeah. number, 3%, includes both. People were the NPE, which I've heard variously used as non-paternity event or not-parent expected.
1: Mm -hmm. Um, Not-parent expected is sort of the more forward-thinking and modern definition, and non-paternity event is like the old definition. You know, I say Um, to my
0: students, I say to my students all the time, I go, we don't know any non-maternity events yet, but it's going to (laughs) happen. 2% of the population is conceived by IVF, 12% of those people are... Egg donors, it's just waiting. I'm, I'm like. all, I train you know what a lot of genetic is? counselors. I always send them off. I'm like, you, you
1: tell me about it when you hear it. I want to know. A non-maternity event is an, a, a person who didn't know that they were adopted uh, and discovers it through DNA testing, Yeah, that's which what it I is write about. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so so, I think that's those, a double whammy. Those
0: also whammy. include uh, donors, right? Egg donors, sperm donors, and so on, in addition to
1: Definitely. Definitely sperm donors yeah. and uh, theoretically egg donors, although I don't know of specific cases. Sometimes people who are both NPE and DC will call themselves DCNPE. That is, they discovered they were donor-conserved, conceived through a not-parent-expected event, right? So it's both at the same time. So the lingo can get kind of, the acronyms can pile up on each other in, as, as people try to describe these experiences.
0: And, and, uh, and, uh, and also other unexpected Turn, turn of events, which I'm not right. going to talk about, because I don't want to give away any spoilers, because it may not be evident from the book, but I want to like um, say I really enjoyed reading this book, and a lot of it is done through individual stories, and particularly one which is sort of woven throughout the book as a detective story. So I'm not going to give that away, but you know, also
1: other twists right. of fate that also can happen. Also other twists of fate, also or for just for an example, but you know, you might discover... For instance, that your your ancestry was hidden from you. Um, you know, there's a there's a person in the book that I talk about who is part um, African American ancestry and doesn't know it. Um, he's one of the you know stories in the book. Um, so there are yeah, other ways a really that a significant unexpected result can play yeah. out. Um, you know, one million people under this very one specific definition, and it's a very conservative estimate. That's like the that's the smallest way to measure it.
0: And if you're going to look at what ancestry we are, what population you come from, that's just the, the, the one you just, the experience you just gave, people passing and then therefore discovering yeah. different ancestry, that's going to go well beyond this 3%, like well beyond. And yeah, overall, yeah. The, the thing that struck me from your stories is how hard it is to predict when these surprises are going to end up affecting lives badly and when they turn out to be, have a happy ending.
1: Right. So it's basically a roulette wheel and it's a roulette wheel in more than one sense. To start with, there is a statistical possibility that you'll discover something significant and unexpected, but for the vast majority of people don't ever think the statistics will apply to them because you assume, of course you assume, I would assume that you know what there is to know about your family. You don't assume that you've gone 50 years with some key piece of Important genetic information and, and a huge family secret having been kept from you, right? So that's that's sort of inconceivable for most for most people. So that's the one kind of aspect of the roulette wheel. And then the other one, and this is the one I tried to tell through pe- individual people's stories, and I would follow them sometimes for a year or more as their stories played out. Is how are the people on the other side going to react? The people on the other side being perhaps your parents who may have kept some key information from you. Uh, for maybe very good historical reasons or what they felt were the right reasons. And then there is your genetic, your newly discovered genetic kin and how will they respond. And, you know, they might embrace you. They might delete their kits. They might accuse you of making it up. Um, it, you know, I tell all those stories in the book because I'm I'm trying to give a sense that, you know, there's literally no way to know how it's going to play out. And it's an incredibly high stakes situation where, like, you and I, say, if we're suddenly newly discovered half-sisters, this is an incredibly intimate, this has the potential to be like a really intimate, close relationship. We're making ourselves vulnerable. And yet, in some situations, my interests and your interests can seem to be at odds at the precise moment, you know, when we are meeting with the potential to have this really close relationship. So it's like the most fraught and... Um, you know, really difficult and yeah. painful my, states that we setting up before this
0: was a thing. My yeah. my aunt, um, my aunt by marriage, so this is not a, and her sister were approached by twins who they had very vaguely known growing up, who said, "We really think that we're your half siblings, and we'd like to do some genetic testing to check that out." And in that, wow, um, yeah, and they were right. They were right. They had, they had reason. They had already figured out through s- certain tests that they that their the guy who raised them was not their fa- the biological father. He was their father, was not their biological father. And uh, they had reason to suspect that their dad. Now, so in that circumstance, the entire parental generation was gone. Yeah. And these kids had sort of grown up feeling somewhat alienated from the man who raised them and they just wanted to know, and they were very clear yeah. they just wanted some information. And it was really one of those happy stories all along. Everyone was like, oh, we'll just embrace this. But it doesn't always happen that way. And I was wondering, like, you know, something I've been giving thought to recently, and maybe you have been thinking of it, like, what should be the etiquette? We're changing the rules here, right? Um, yeah. In all these different circumstances. And i you thought about, like, do you think – I'm not talking about – government regulation or, mm-hmm, you know, right. I'm, I'm talking about like societal etiquette. Like yeah. what should be the norms that we have about approaching people? Um, do you have any thoughts yeah. about
1: that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a great question because uh, I think that there's no real sort of support and guidance for people in these situations. I mean, the, the most guidance that exists is on these Facebook support groups. There are many of them and they are quite large. Um, and so, you know, I interviewed a woman who helps run a, um, a support group for people who are donor-conceived and seeking their genetic kin through DNA testing, and she, like, she basically has become an expert on that first letter that you write to your genetic father or to your genetic siblings, but specifically, most generally, to your, to your sperm donor father, like, how do you phrase that? And she walked me through, like, all the different ways people can write a letter and how they could write it best. You know, she talked about not um, not giving too much of yourself in that first letter, or not making yourself too vulnerable, um, not um, giving too much information because you want to hold stuff back both to protect yourself and because um, it, it becomes, um, you know, an opportunity for the person to want to find out more if you don't give them everything up front and also just not sort of maybe – Um, intimidating the person on the other side by, with your, with too much information or making them feel too weighted down. So like more of a light touch, right? Like more of like a Um, Well, in genetics, we talk
0: about this idea of the right not to know. So maybe you're also respecting their right to not know information that they don't want.
1: so this goes to, like, another point, which is oftentimes people will say, like, let's say you're on 23andMe and you see a relative who could be, like, a half-sibling. You know, the advice is often not, you know, not to write a whole long thing. Oh, my gosh, we're half-siblings. But just to be like, hey, I see that 23andMe, uh, you know, uh, says that we're related, would you like to find out more? It's almost like giving the person just enough information to explain why you're trying to make the connection, but not drawing so many of the inferences And f- for them because you want the other person to kind of come to things to some extent maybe on their own. You don't want to like plop this massive um, revolution in, in their the lap. The other thing that yeah. came
0: up in the book that you brought up that I hadn't really thought about is that the closer you can get, like, so if you can approach your biological parent rather than your sibling, the less you're outing somebody in their lives. Right. So if
1: yeah. you go through
0: it's, the cousins and you're like, that, that can feel more comfortable. I imagine that might feel more comfortable to sort of approach that. Well,
1: and, and some amount of that is necessary, right? Because if you're, if you're, figuring, if you're an adoptee figuring out your genetic, your birth mother through a third cousin, and you have to do genetic genealogy te- te- techniques to even figure out like which branch you're you're focusing on. Like you're going to have to approach that third cousin and see get about see if their family tree. And you may even need to approach another cousin and and send them a test and see if they're willing to test. So some amount of of contact with those cousins, if you're doing a, you know if you have a lot of work to do in terms of in terms of unraveling your family tree, like may be necessary. So it's it's a tricky thing, you know. It, it's there's people, there are search angels who helped adoptees, and this is what they do. And then there's other there's a woman I interviewed in the book who like doesn't take on this work because she she says, you know, the chance of that that possible birth parent being outed because necessarily because of the methods that are used to figure out their identity. It's just I, you know I'm not against it, but I'm just not comfortable doing it. So it's it's it's, 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 it's interesting.
0: So with adoption. We have this clear situation now from the past where there's just been a change in the rules. So mm-hmm. now it's a little bit different if you were to be a donor now or whatever. You, you, you should be ex- it should be explained to you that there's really no such thing as complete anonymity. Right, um, exactly. But, but going from the past, people who were sperm donors or gave up children for adoption thought they may, may have felt that they did it under the understanding that for them they were given promises that this wouldn't happen. But the person breaking the promise gave no promise, right? They weren't promising. And so it's this clear thing. And do you feel yourself comfortable with the idea that many people feel a need to seek out and find their birth family? Are their rights in this situation paramount? How comfortable are you assuming or getting behind the idea that a a person seeking to find their birth family, that the, they have the right to do that in the face of somebody that doesn't want to be found.
1: Right. It's a very complicated question, um, partly because you don't know how the person on the other side is going to react. And once you've unsealed the box, you can't take it back. Right. So it's it, it, you know in the absence of knowing. I mean, there there. I think there's been some study looking at. Um, Looking at experiences of closed adoptions, and um, the, I think the majority of birth mothers are ultimately glad to be found, um, based on those studies, which were done I think before the days of DNA testing. But it's hard to predict in any specific situation, uh, or glad to be found, or were in, or wanted. Maybe that's not the phrase. I think that the, I think that the majority of birth mothers who were studied before the age of DNA testing, who gave up their children during closed adoptions and then were reunited in some way with their kids, were, you know, did want to have a relationship, but it's hard to know in any one situation, whether that's going to be true for any particular parent. And I, you know, I, I do think there's this kind of collision here between, between people's interests and it's incredibly, um, it's incredibly complex The majority of the people that I talked to who were in the process of seeking, because the implications of a DNA test bore directly on their own genetic identities, in other words, how they were conceived, who their parents were, how they came into the world, whether or not they had a sibling they didn't know about, these people told me over and over that even when the discovery was disruptive, painful, traumatic, even when it told them something really, really upsetting about the way they came into the world, they were glad to know because they placed such a high premium on the truth that, that it, it, it shed their whole, it put their whole you know, existence into a, a new light. And so even when the truth was painful, even when it was hard to process, um, they were they were ultimately glad to know. They, yeah, I made they needed to know that. the truth. That's in my, my question because right. it was very but, striking but, to me. But that. on yeah. the other side, so that there's, there's a question of autonomy here, right? And is the secret about you? If the secret's about you, let's say there's a genetic secret in your family, if the secret's about you and you're the one seeking, it's a very clear that you're almost always going to feel glad to know based on the interviews that I've done, and I'm sure there are exceptions. But the people on the other side don't tell their stories as much because they don't, want these stories told. These are painful things that they wish, the boxes that they wish had never been opened. Um, And their voices don't get, their voices don't get told as much. You know, I, I had to tell their stories through like, you know, a woman tries to contact her, her genetic father and the genetic father simply deletes his kit, right? That's quite clear how he feels about it, but he never speaks up and tells his story. Yeah. I mean,
0: I have to say that I think there's a difference between people who are actually in the database themselves and people you get at through genetic genealogy, the process you were just describing, where you go through mm-hmm. cousins and figure it yeah. out. Because there is a tacit ex, you know, um, uh, consent of putting – and not so tacit. They actually do sign a consent. And obviously, they may not be, have a real understanding of what they're consenting to. It's very mm-hmm. unexpected. But I think it's fair for the person on the other do- cent, side to say, well, they're, they're in the, the database. They're, they're, they're contactable. Right, they agreed to, to they they right. knew what they were getting into or they weren't. And actually, that's a good question. So, are the companies doing a good job with this? Do you think that the, um, now I understand that these companies are being thrust into a sort of a gatekeeping role they did not anticipate mm-hmm. or request. And right. that it's a handful of individuals making enormous decisions on behalf of right. the entire country, which is, by the way, nuts. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> um but uh should there be more warnings? What do you think of the what do you think of where they've landed on that issue?
1: Yeah, I think that they could be way more explicit. Um I think I, in the years when I was reporting this, 23andMe was more explicit than the other companies, which gave me a sense that there is room to be more explicit because each company was making its own choices about how how many warnings to give. How many black boxes to make people, you know, outwardly consent, explicitly consent to open? Twenty three Me even put up like a page on navigating unexpected relationships, and they like offer you like resources like BetterHelp, um, which is like an online therapy, you know, app. Um, so they've they've pushed this, and I do feel like more could be done um, in terms of really letting people explicitly know you know, this is the possibility. But as I said, at the same time, the problem is that statistically people tend not to assume that it will apply to them so that even like, you know, I I talk about this, you know, she's a geneticist and science writer who has a science blog and she writes about DNA testing. And one of the things she wrote back in 2017 was, you know, just know that Christmas DNA gifts are, are, you know, offering, you know, surprises for families. Hey, did you know about this? And, like, about a year later, she finds out herself through DNA testing that she's donor-conceived and has eventually learns to find, you know, finds out she has multiple half-siblings through this donor. So even, like, the people, I talked to a woman who worked at Ancestry, similar thing, unexpected surprise through DNA. She works for Ancestry. So the point is, like, even if you're kind of steeped in you know, other people's lives, and you kind of know the risk on an abstract level, if you want to call it risk, I mean, I, it, it, they, people might not call it risk. They might, because they're glad to find out, they might, they might, you know, process it in a different way and use a different word. But, you know, even if you're kind of in that world, um, you still don't generally expect that it will happen to you. And, and I think, I just want to go back to something you were saying earlier, um, which has to do with, you know, are we are people being adequately warned? And you know how does this affect people who are being sought out even they didn't sign up for it? I mean I think the point now is that we are all drawn into this. Um, whether or not you test, because of the nature of shared genetic material, it increasingly doesn't matter whether you ever want to do a DNA cut or not, whether you ever read that warning or not. If you stay as far away from Twenty Three and Ancestry and you never want to plunk your money down, it doesn't matter. And that's because, you know, there's just so many people in the databases, 35 million at this point about, that I really believe that if there's a genetic secret in your family, it's going to come out. And even if you never test, you're going to find out, right, because your sister tests or your aunt tests or your, your parent tests, and they discover something, and that information gets relayed to you. So, a couple years ago, there was like a lot of advice going around, like, well, think carefully before you test, blah, blah, blah. And when I first started writing my book, I was kind of writing it from that point of view. As I think was writing my book, spit, and the databases were getting the, bigger, yeah. yeah. Now, it's not even think before you spit. Now, it's what conversation do you need to have with your family to get ahead of the inevitable? Because it's not a question of, if it's a question of when, so this you know? is interesting
0: because this is not a new phenomenon for medical professionals in the genetics world. Uh, this non-paternity event thing is something that's been coming up ever since we started doing any sort of genetic testing in medicine. Is yeah. the possibility that you uncover that somebody's father is not who they think their father is? You're supposed to say, um, you know, not supposed to say uh, misattributed parentage, but. You know, Mm, it's always mm. the father, so let's be honest about it here. So this was sort of the old thing, and and there were a a couple of assumptions. So the most, I can't generalize to everyone, but most genetics people, uh, certainly even uh, 10 or 15 years ago, say like, well, you know, try everything you can do absent compromising the person's medical situation because sometimes you have to say something. To just not give out that information, mm-hmm. try to avoid it, right? Because you're, you're going to disrupt the family for nothing, right? And right. I actually wrote an article a few years ago where I said, like, we really need to rethink our default approach to finding out something by genetic test, because you're no longer protecting the family from finding this out. You're kicking the can down the road, hmm. um, and when that person finds out, they're going to know that you didn't give them full information. Right. Um, and they're going to feel distrustful. And so in the, in, the, in the spirit, the two things, one is in the spirit of transparency, should we not be being honest? And the other is, of course, we're supposed to be the people, we are the people who believe that having correct family health history information is very important. Mm-hmm. Um, and when somebody doesn't know who their parent is, they not only don't have the correct information, they have false information. So yeah. we've been wrestling this forever, and by the way, we're really still not comfortable with it. It's all <laughs> very old. it hasn't gotten yeah. any easier. but I would say, like so I don't know what you think, I would say uh, just tell the truth at this point in time
1: yeah, yeah i think I think that is that is the advice that people are giving um, you know there's a there's a genetic counselor named Brianne Kirkpatrick. I think you know yeah. her I know Brianne um, very well, yeah.
0: And yeah, she's been on so the, she, she's been on the
1: show. Okay, so there you're right. So there you go. So she I mean, I I kind of read her blog a lot because I think she's got a really keen sense for ethics in this space and she's um someone who specializes in DNA surprises um and she I believe has been increasingly giving this advice that, you know, that it's the right thing to do to have these conversations um Say if you're if you know something about say um, your child like say your child is donor conceived and your child doesn't know your child's in their fifties um, and they just don't know that um, it's the right thing to do to tell them because people's genetic identities matter like it matters to them for a whole host of reasons to have that information and because it's a heck of a lot better to find out from somebody you love. Than to sit down and spit into a tube, like six months from now, three years from now, whatever, and log in and find out via computer screen that your parents never told you this really important pertinent information. Right? I think I
0: think I think it's pretty universal that people don't like to feel tricked, fooled,
1: cupped out of a loop, right? And then worst worst is I would say for a lot of people is if they find out after their parents passed away because because then there's all this key information you you may have read inheritance by Danny Shapiro she discovers she's donor conceived and she talks about you know not really knowing exactly what her parents knew and the some of the book is about this you know discovery of trying to figure out what they knew um, and I've talked to other people who've had similar experiences. Those, that inability to get your questions answered, I think that can be really painful. So better to have those conversations sooner rather than later, so that you can, you can say, okay, mom, what did you know? Okay, dad, what did you know? You know, how did you? Was the doctor mixing the sperm? Like, did he, did he or she tell you to go? um have intercourse right around when he was inseminating you so that so that you would never truly know. None of us could we could we could say that dad was my genetic father. Like what were the circumstances and how did you how did you go on for all those years never telling me. I think I think people are willing to accept a lot of things if they can just have the transparency and the open conversations they need to process that information. And you know
0: there's um and you cover both sides of this in the, in the book, and you mentioned a little bit of here, there's the, I'm not actually the, pe- the child of who I thought I was biologically, so on. There's also the uh, side of this that's like, what background do I belong to more generally? Yeah. And yeah. Um, when you mentioned the story about people discovering that they were African American, they didn't know it because their ancestors had um, passed, and that's obviously a very loaded concept in this, in this country, um, because it intersects with history. But I actually think the whole, so I, have to, I always say this, it's sort of like, these kids, like, I kind of hate Jeanette. I kind of hate ancestry testing i kind of hate it because mm-hmm. it's like it's like oh i i know i'm i'm in the minority here but it's like it's like a harmless hobby you know like give it to grandma for christmas so mm-hmm. much fun i actually did give someone in my family a kid friend it was fine he loved you know i thought he'd like it he did like it but, <laughs> <laughs> but it's but what i don't like about it, it ties into some what some dark stuff and it it, and yeah. and it 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 goes very quickly into uh yeah. it's really interesting because here you have this modern 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 technology that we can use to create the kind of families we <laughs> want to have same sex mm-hmm. parents and to have uh you know donor donor children so that we can um we can create you know families based on love mm-hmm. and at the same time, ties in so tight to like xenophobia and nativism yeah. and this whole Eugenics. idea that our, who, uh, who are, our notions of DNA and our notions of race and ancestry, which are somewhat artificial, really, in, in, yeah. in their boundaries, um, are so important. And um, it's tribal, right? Like it's the newest yeah. technology in the world and it's the oldest feeling in the world. It's so tribal. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um,
0: But so you did that. You went out, you went and visited your home. I mean, like, does it matter in the end? Does it matter to know?
1: Um, (laughs) I would say it matters to me because I think it matters, but not in the very sort of alarming, frightening way that it could matter to somebody else. So so there are people who do this because they want to enhance their family history research. They want that connection to the past, right? And to their own sort of ancestral identities. And that's that's an informed journey, right? And they know the limitations of the ethnicity estimates and they also maybe understand how race is truly a social construct and yet also how, you know, these ethnicity estimates work. And so you go if you go in with that knowledge um, there's some research out of the University of uh, there was a re- sociologist named Wendy Roth, who's now at University of Pennsylvania, and, and she, sh- she suggests from her research that if you go in with a high level of genetic literacy, you walk out of an ancestry test with a, a lesser sense of genetic essentialism. So a greater sense that we're all kind of like, you know, a greater sense of kinship with our fellow human beings and the ways in which we are all alike and the, I, a sense that race is a social construct. So that's one view. Then in addition to that, she's found that if you go in with a low genetic literacy, so you don't really know what the tests are looking at, you you can walk out with a greater sense of genetic essentialism, which is to say um, people are more othered, and there's a greater sense that race is something to be found in the genes. And you do see, um, like in the far right corners of the Internet, um, which is not a place to go, um, but you do see that white supremacists have taken to these tests to prove their purity. Um, and there's another group of sociologists who sort of studied their responses. I think it was like on Stormfront. They watched um, how people would were using these tests to post about their own purity. And um, what was very interesting was that ultimately they formed a community for themselves that was very... Um, they were very selective in their interpretations of what they chose to honor. So if, for instance, a test suggested they were anything less than European white of the whatever particular European countries they felt were the best to be, German perhaps. <laughs> not um,
0: not, not if, Finland for some strange reason, right?
1: Oh, is that right? That's yeah. Interesting. I didn't know that. Okay. Yeah. So whatever it was that they wanted, that um, that typically they would support each other through it and allow one another to be selective in their interpretation of the results and say, Ugh, oh, that's probably just algorithmic noise. Oh, that little bit over there that suggests you're maybe Ashkenazi Jewish, ugh, oh, don't worry about it, or perhaps, Oh, it's all a Jewish conspiracy anyway. (laughs) Yeah, I I
0: was wondering if you were going to bring that up. I've heard that over and over again. Like the people who, who, the scientists who do this are just, it's a conspiracy. It's It's a liberal conspiracy conspiracy to make everybody think they're mongrels when obviously we are secretly really, really pure because obviously human beings never interbreed. Like that's not a thing that happens.
1: Right, Um, right. Hey, you're 2% Neanderthal, you know. (laughs) All of this is to say that, you know, it really matters – I think education around genetics really matters. I, I, I really think what it matters when you go in. What This audience, yeah, yeah, right. I mean, yeah. it, it matters that you under. You also have to understand what these ethnicity estimates are and why they're of like why they're evolving and sometimes of limited value. Like mm-hmm. it's really, really important to have the context. If you walk in with context, I think these things can be really cool, and then you can say, "Wow, that's so cool! I have an ancestor from Sweden," which is right. what we, you know, which is what we found out. Um, and, and it, it, but it, on the other hand, you know, can there be a tool for othering people? Yeah, they can. And, and it's, that's really problematic. It, it is really
0: interesting to go against my own. It's really interesting because, you know, I mean, so take the African American experience where you hear people say, and, uh, you know, in your book, you cover this really, you hear people say both, you know, what group better understands that race is a social construct, right? And Mm -hmm. they have tons of European genes, it doesn't make any sense to draw lines, and at the same time, also a group of people for whom genetic genealogy may be the only way to trace back links to the past because they had this abrupt severing of all these links.
1: Right, and there's no paper trails for them because before, I think, the 1870 census, they're just, enslaved peoples were just tick marks, they weren't named. So they really need, uh, I I did interview a number of people who are African-American who talked about how incredibly amazing DNA testing has been for them in terms of their ability to figure out where their peoples came from before they were brought here, um, you know, as enslaved peoples.
0: Yeah, um, so I shouldn't be so cavalier, but I I, I just... Um For me, the whole subject, it's, like, interesting, and it has this kind of strange wholesomeness to it, right? Like, Mm -hmm. what a nice hobby. But it has an edge (laughs) underneath.
1: It has an edge. It does. It It does, especially because of the early history of genetics. Like, what we know about genetics and eugenics and how tied in they were together, like, we basically can't get away from it. I feel like we're still having the same conversations all of these decades later, many, many decades later. We have and we, all we, sorts of
0: new problems, but we have not solved any of the old yes, ones.
1: Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and yet, so then bringing this full circle, which is very interesting, and back to something that you said, it seemed to me that in the majority of the cases, the people that you worked with, and I don't know whether maybe there's a tiny little, maybe this is something of a bias, or maybe it truthfully reflects what you found, Most people seem to, at the end of the day, really been glad that they got whatever information they got.
1: Yeah, yeah, because we place a high value on knowing the truth, you know. The truth because, why? Because, man, it answers questions for people. Sometimes these are questions that are so um, deep down that maybe we never even articulated them to ourselves, but they're there. Um, sometimes people tell me stories about they go back and they edit their childhoods, they, re, they sort of annotate their memories, right? So they have a memory of something that's sort of stuck in their mind, it's a little bit weird or whatever, for whatever reason they remembered it, and then they went back and reprocessed it, and now it made sense why their mom said that one thing that one time about this and that. That's exactly um, the
0: experience, my my aunt. Um, that's funny you say that. I had just thought of that. I hadn't remembered this in years, but I told you my aunt had this experience. And the twins yeah. when they came to her, they said, "The reason we think it's your dad is one time, the the boy when he was a child had gotten in like, he he was there was a problem. He was a problem. He was sort of stranded somewhere, and no one could get him. And there was a, there was a set of, problem. and." Um, my aunt's father showed up to rescue him from this situation. And he he knew the mom. She worked for him. They sort of clearly knew each other. So it wasn't incredibly weird, but it stuck with him his whole childhood. It's like, why did that Mm. man show up to rescue me in this emergency situation? Like, that was very strange of all of their friends, that my my Mm. mom's boss's boss would show up. And as a grown-up, when he realized he didn't know who his biological father was, he thought... Well, maybe that explains that moment in time, that one moment in yeah. my childhood. It's pretty interesting.
1: Yeah. yeah. Uh, that's a really universal experience. Like that's that 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 process of going back and rethinking, that is something people said over and over and over. It really mattered to them. And not and not just for things like health history. Like those things are very important and um, you know, you can make Decisions that are very weighty based on false health information, false family history, you know, health information, and that's a real problem. But it's not just that, it's also like an existential thing, it's also a psychological thing, it's also a really, really profound matter of self conception to know how you came into the world because you can't write your story if you don't if you don't have a true grasp of the beginnings of your story, right? Well, Once not, you, to get, not to
0: get too, yeah. uh, um,
1: not to get too uh,
0: metaphysical about this, but I have always said... Oh, hilarious. get metaphysical. <laughs> I think if I were to describe human beings, like if I got to name human beings as a species, I would give them some sort of Latin name that meant... Uh, beings that tell stories about themselves yes exactly I mean, if it was anything that separates us from sort of anyone and everybody else, uh, uh, all the other species on this planet, so we make stories, and I think that if you 've ever been in a situation where you found out something about your life that was different than what you had been thinking, it is a physically painful process akin to knitting a bone back together that your brain goes through to incorporate that new information into your life story. I think that evolutionarily knowing our stories allowed us to, to make the, to not make the same mistakes over and over yes. again and to know how to act in this world. Yes. And that therefore being clear about your life story is something that's literally hardwired into your 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 brain is something that it, it wants to it wants the right information it wants to put it in there. So I, do I love think that description feel a of, of knitting
1: yeah knitting a bone back together. I think that's beautiful and I think that's it. I mean we are storytellers. We do need to tell our own stories. Um, it's I people talked about how profoundly disruptive it was to and dislocating like as if all of a sudden you know you had like been standing in one spot on planet Earth and you discover this thing. And ever, the entire world around you changes and you don't recognize it. And, and that was really interesting to me. And the other thing that I, that I noticed was there was this one metaphor that came up in at least three interviews that I did. Um, but this was such a specific metaphor that I think um, it, it, it struck, stuck with me that, that three different people invoked it, although in different language. And I started calling it the lonely boat metaphor. And it's this sense of being totally cut off on a raft or on a boat adrift on your own in the water as if you you have no belonging and this is people who made a discovery an unexpected discovery through dna testing or maybe they made that discovery and learned that people they thought they were related to they weren't related there's this profound sense of disorientation and loneliness for these people until they can figure out where they do kind of fit which could mean finding genetic family who embraces them and could mean finding a genetic family that doesn't embrace them but just the knowledge to kind of reorient themselves to the world of like where do i fit into this this scenery or this like this my surroundings my landscape around me like that that was a process that was like it was profoundly um unsettling and and taxing. Like, it would take years, maybe, mm-hmm. in some cases, maybe a whole lifetime to process that news, but it was extremely important for people. And I will just say, like, putting in, like, my little plug for something that I think is necessary, like, there's very little mental health assistance for people going through this. Like, this is not yet in the DSM. It's not a recognized, you know, it's not a subspecialty. That psych- there's a handful of psychologists starting to specialize in this, but there's not really... I I do think in, in, you know, a decade or two, this is going to be the sort of thing that that psychologists and mental health counselors will, like, have specialties in. It will be called DNA Surprise or it will be called, there's a psychologist on the West Coast, I think she calls it Parental Identity Discovery. Uh, You know, there will be something where people will... um, it, they'll be able to help you because this is a very specific kind of experience that can be very traumatic. And, and part of the trauma is the suddenness of the discovery and the fact that nobody told you. It's not like somebody came to you and told you, you spit into a vial and you discovered it that way. It, that's very painful.
0: Well, it's a great plea for honesty, a
1: Great, a great <laughs> case making
0: a great case for honesty. And I would like to, because um, we're kind of Running out of time, so I'm going to make a couple other cases, which is that we have gone through this entirety of this interview as a coronavirus free zone, and I appreciate the break. I hope everybody else appreciates the break, but also we are in—that's where we are right now—and yeah. uh, this book is great. It's. It's, it's, it's both interesting and well-written. We haven't even touched on the stories that have gone there. I really enjoyed reading it. So if you need a distraction, not only get it, but like maybe like call up your local bookstore and order it there because uh, if, if they're trying to work online, because uh, um, we all need to, to support the people who are struggling right now. Including There's the authors website. who worked for <laughs> years you. on their books and now can't yeah. do replace parties, so like, go out there and talk so, it up. But I guarantee you, if you recommend this to people, they will they will thank you for it. So and I, you, you know, so I don't much. do a lot of advertising. I just really enjoyed it very very much.
1: Oh, thank you so much. And I'll just say, if you don't want to call up your local bookstore, Indiebound. Indiebound is like the alternative if you don't want to order from Amazon, and they deal with local independent booksellers as far as I know, and they'll send it to you. So you don't have to go to the books store which is probably no, don't closed go. anyway don't
0: go anywhere I mean, don't go don't to the go bookstore. bookstore no 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 Shelter we're not place. going anywhere right now yeah yeah <laughs> no i'm not saying go. i'm just saying like get it get it you can go to <laughs> thank Amazon, you laura it's, okay. it's like something to do you're sitting home we all know it we all know you need something to do it's very distracting think about other things so and i hope you've enjoyed this um i don't know how many minutes it's been um in a coronavirus free zone um and uh, I want to thank you, Libby Copeland, for joining me today.
1: Oh, Laura, this is such a treat. I've really enjoyed talking to you, and I, I really, really appreciate it. Thank you.
0: And uh, we will keep putting out, because podcasting is something that's not disrupted, so <laughs> I'll keep trying to put out as many as, as distractions as I can. I hope everybody is safe and well out there. Thanks for joining us today. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thanks.